start a new religion. He came to show us what God is like. He came to reunite God and man. And as we've been studying over the past couple of weeks, we know he does that through his church, the unstoppable church, established by Christ through the apostles and prophets. In Ephesians 2.20, it says that, and advancing throughout history until ultimately victorious at the end of this earthly age in Revelation 19. Our theme verse for this series is Matthew sixteen eighteen, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whether or not the local church is a true part of the advance of the universal church worldwide is largely up to us in how we respond to his voice and his word on that matter. Okay, and just to be clear, we know that we cannot accomplish anything of lasting value on our own. It is only through our faith in Jesus Christ and the power and leading of the Holy Spirit that we can advance His church. But if we, upcountry church, fail to respond to His voice and His word about His church, we will simply become a nice, family-oriented, civic organization, won't we? And, and if that's where this journey that we're all on together ultimately leads, then let's just all go join the YMCA together, right? Why bother with all of this if it doesn't lead to anything greater? You see, we've been charged, commanded by God himself to make disciples. We talked about that last week, to build his church. And although we're obviously a part of building the church, it's bigger than just us. You see, if we truly are following his commission to his disciples, to us on the matter, uh, it's bigger than us. We're a part of something bigger, something greater, something eternal, something that is beyond our limited human ability. How can that be? Well, the disciples asked Jesus the same question as he was explaining to them how difficult it is for a rich person to be saved. It's an interesting passage. You know, we could probably just replace rich person in that passage with American. You know, compared to the rest of the world, most of us in here are materially mega wealthy. As a matter of fact, I was looking at some statistics. Americans make up at least half of the world's richest 1%, which is wonderful. That's, that's a blessing. But sometimes I think we've replaced reliance on God in our culture with reliance on government and insurance and retirement plans and property and the stock market. And look, I'm, I'm all for blessing. I've said that before, and I am. God has taken such good care of us materially, and I'm thankful for it. But we're so accustomed to having a certain standard of living in our culture that I wonder if in the end, most Westerners won't find it very difficult to truly submit their lives to Christ. In fact, I fear that we're already there. In Matthew 19, starting on verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Thank you, Lord, for that statement. You see, if Jesus Christ isn't at the center of all that we do, then there's no way that we'll ever have any measurable success at building His church, at making disciples. But if we keep our focus on Him, all things are possible. 
That's how Upcountry Church will advance the cause of Christ, by keeping our focus on Him and in everything that we set ourselves to and in keeping in step with His leading. And, and in that process, we have to maintain godly character, godly attributes, values that are modeled for us in Scripture. All right? Otherwise, it's just an exercise in hypocrisy. And we can't, we cannot in the church just talk about Jesus. We have to act like Him. In fact, we have to live like Him and treat each other like He treated those around Him. Okay? In week one, we saw that we must operate with integrity, the first week of this series. Last week, we talked about being intentional, staying focused on people rather than programs, and making disciples, not just converts. And today, continuing this series, we're going to explore the fact that if the local church is going to be effective... In advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we absolutely must be compassionate. Okay? Compassion isn't optional for the church today. It's something that the church had better actually get serious about before we're completely written off by the world as uncaring and irrelevant. That's a, that's a trend in our society that is already well established, by the way. But if we're to be a part of reversing that trend, we have, to, we have to set the standard in our culture for compassion from within the church. Okay? David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group. If you've probably heard of them, it's a well-respected research group, the Barna Group. He's the new CEO. And in 2007, he wrote a book after a three-year research uh, project based on the American Christian Church and the perception of Christians by people outside of the church. This is a, a quote from that book. It's called Unchristian. Christianity has an image problem. If you've lived in America for very long, I doubt this surprises you. But it brings up important questions. Just what exactly do people think about Christians and Christianity? Why do these perceptions exist? Obviously, people believe their views are accurate, otherwise they would disavow them. But do their perceptions reflect reality? And why do people's perceptions matter? Should they matter to Christ followers? I've spent the last three years studying these questions through extensive interviews and research. You may be astonished to learn just how significant the dilemma is and how the negative perceptions that your friends, neighbors, and colleagues have of Christianity will shape your life and our culture in the years to come. Our research shows that many of those outside of Christianity, especially younger adults, have little trust in the Christian faith and esteem for the lifestyle of Christ followers is quickly fading among outsiders. They admit their emotional and intellectual barriers go up when they're around Christians and they reject Jesus because they feel rejected by Christians. That last line is something we should really pay attention to. They reject Jesus because they feel rejected by Christians. That book made me angry many times reading it. And there are some things, things in the book that I don't even know if I agree with. But I'll tell you what, there's no question based on that research that this perception of Christians is real and it's there, okay? Why do they feel rejected by Christians? At the heart of the matter, I believe, is compassion or the lack of it. All right. How much do we really care about the world? Those outside of the church, those who don't follow Christ, do we really care about those people? For upcountry church to advance, for us to move forward in that great commission that he charged to his disciples on the, on the top of a mountain in Galilee, to all of his disciples that day and 
in the future, all of us, we have to care. It has to matter to us. We unquestionably must have compassion and share compassion with the world if we're to have any effect at all outside of this building. I believe that. So what is compassion? Well, is it a feeling? Is it a state of mind? Is it a philosophy? I would contend that compassion, when fully realized, always leads to action. Compassion in the end is something that we do. Feelings are certainly involved. We can be, um, and I think people often are moved to compassion through our feelings. But for true compassion to be present and working in the church, there has to be action involved, okay? We're going to look at this idea of compassion leading to action some more throughout the message as we work through these scriptures. So in the world's eyes then, what sets us, the church, apart from everyone else? What makes us different? What makes us different from every other benevolent organization in the context of compassion? What makes us different from the Red Cross or United Way? What, what makes us different? Okay, first is our compassion, our example, excuse me, of compassion, which is Jesus Christ. What makes us different? It's our example of compassion. Jesus didn't just have compassion for people and then act on it. He actually put others' needs before his own. <clears throat> this is a big one. You see, it's one thing for us to write a check out of our relative wealth to sponsor a child. My wife and I do that. Or to support a missionary, we do that. Or to pay some food for a needy family, and that's all good. That's all good. But it's something entirely different when writing that check means that we can no longer buy ourselves that new fishing rod or pair of shoes that we've been wanting because we just gave that money that we've been saving for ourselves to someone else. When we, when we can't take the vacation we'd been planning on or stay in the resort maybe that we had all picked out because we're going to help dig a well in Africa for a village that doesn't have clean drinking water or we decide to fix up a house in our neighborhood for a widow who can't afford it, something in disrepair, that is truly placing other people's needs before our own. That's what Jesus did. Even the world and worldly people, unbelievers, take care out of their wealth and common concern for humankind, for others. But Jesus gave to others even at the forsaking of his own need. That's what separates Christians from other organizations. Luke 11, 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Even the world takes care of their own. What did Jesus say about those who give only out of their wealth? Skip forward if you're in Luke to chapter 21. Starting in verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. And He, said, he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. You see, Jesus not only noticed and took note of what that widow was doing, what she was giving, he made sure to point it out to his disciples. 
It was easy out of a sense of religious obligation for the well-off, the wealthy, to give out of their wealth because it didn't really cost them anything. But the widow gave out of her need and Jesus himself called attention to it. Because why? Because it models his own heart. A heart of compassion. He noticed things, people, who were acting out of compassion from his own heart. A heart of compassion that puts others' needs before our own, okay? And of course, our ultimate example of compassion was Jesus' own actions. 1 John three sixteen through 18 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Compassion always leads to action. Otherwise, we're just making noise. And we're giving the world more reason to dismiss the church, Christians, as hypocritical, insincere, and irrelevant. I had a, a, a friend, I have a friend that I met in seminary, a girl named Usha, an Indian woman who was raised in Britain and now lives in Jacksonville, Florida. I can't figure that out either. She's married to a guy from Ohio. Usha's a good friend. They live in a very poor neighborhood. They're missionary, um, they train missionaries and don't have much money. And Usha's house was broken into a few months ago and they stole everything. They came home and they had nothing left and she put on Facebook all of her research. We're, we're in a master's program together doing our master's degrees for theology. She lost all of her research because it was on her computer. Heartbreaking. She said something about it on Facebook and there must have been 4,081 people that responded I'm so sorry Usha, I'm praying for you. I did too. <laughs> and I don't remember the exact number but there were hundreds of people that responded. And this guy, who I don't know, who apparently knows Usha, went on there and he said, I don't mean to offend, but if each one of you Christians who are praying for Usha would send her $100, she could replace her computer. And he went on and listed all of the things. I was so convicted about that statement. See, we're all making noise about loving each other and praying for each other, but what are we actually doing? I went home and wrote a check for $100 that I didn't have and sent it to Usha. The point then is to follow Christ's example of compassion. Compassion for each other within the church, the body of believers, and outside of the church. Compassion for the world. What makes us different from every other worldly organization in terms of compassion then is that our compassion is based, is supposed to be based on the example of Christ. So let's look at how he showed compassion for his followers, okay? And we're going to see what we can learn about our compassion for each other within the church. Let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to John chapter 11, and I'm sure we have it on the screen. We're going to read the story of Lazarus, and we'll start in verse 1. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, 
Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Okay, Bethany was a village about two miles from Jerusalem, and interestingly enough, the name of that village today is El Azariah, which means place of Lazarus, so they still recognize that's where this happened. And this was the town where some of Jesus' closest friends lived. In other words, they weren't strangers. These were friends, followers, disciples, like extended family. He loved these people. And they were very close to him. Okay, verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So clearly, Jesus already knew what was getting ready to happen with Lazarus. Right? This wasn't a surprise for him. Keep that in mind as we continue to read through here. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, that's a little odd. That's a strange statement. Jesus really loves these people. So when he heard that his close friend, this man that he loved, was sick and dying, he decided to hang out where he was for a couple of days before going to see him. As strange as this may seem, and I, I wondered about this for a while when I was younger, <clears throat> the truth is, that statement should really give us a tremendous amount of comfort in knowing that no matter how bad circumstances may be for us, God never gets rattled. He isn't nervous. He isn't at a loss for what to do. But don't mistake that for apathy because he cares very deeply as we'll see. Verse 7, then after this he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Again, Jesus already knew what was going to happen, clearly in his statements in regard to Lazarus dying. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus has spoken, had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, like, look, guys, <laughs> he's dead. Lazarus has died. Verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Okay, so as so often is the case in life circumstances where we're befuddled, we don't know what to do, God has a higher purpose for what's happening. All right, a purpose that we are often unaware of and sometimes don't even realize until much later after the smoke is cleared and the circumstances changed. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us, also, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Okay, is there any question at this point? Jesus knows what's going to take place. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I love how Jesus' followers never really got what he was saying. About 90% of the time. They just didn't get it. And it, I can imagine the conversations after he had, you know, ascended to heaven, sitting around going, oh man, now I get it. You know, it must have hit him. I wonder what that was like in the middle of the night, you know. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came, so now they followed her, so there's a whole bunch of people coming out to meet Jesus. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Why was he crying? Was it because he missed Lazarus? Was it the grief that we experience when a loved one dies? Of course not. He knew exactly what was getting ready to happen. He knew that Lazarus was about to be raised from the dead. For Lazarus, this death, this sleep was temporary. It had been a few days, four days. And he wasn't suffering. Jesus knew right then and there that his friends were about to be reunited in moments with Lazarus. So why did he weep? Why was he troubled deeply? Because his friends, these people that he loved so much, were hurting. They were grieving and it deeply moved him to see his friends. Because he cares that much about how we feel. You see, when, when we hurt, he hurts with us. Not because he feels hopeless or lost, but because he loves us so much that he's moved by our feelings of hopelessness and loss. It's a big difference. What's even more fascinating about this passage to me and emphasizes all the more just how much Jesus cares about us is the fact that he absolutely knew that in the next few minutes the situation was going to be completely resolved. He's about to fix everything. Yet he still wept for his friends. I mean, how easy would it be for us to say, hey, quit crying. Hang on. We're getting ready to fix this. It's going to be fine. I mean, that would be my nature. It's not what Jesus did. This really ought to speak to some of you today. The answer to your dilemma, your circumstance, the problem that you may be facing right now, it might be right around the corner. The answer to whatever it is. We don't know. In fact, he's already provided the answer for your need. We know that. And although we don't know the timing in which the answer or provision will come, you can rest assured and, and listen to me now. He has not abandoned you. 
he has not turned away from you. He hasn't even allowed his concern for you to lapse for a minute. In truth, he weeps when you weep. And he rejoices when you rejoice. Even when he's just about to bring you out of all of your hurt and despair, even in those final moments of your pain and loss, he pauses and he weeps with you. Not because he's at a loss for what to do, but simply because he loves you. Intensely. I hope that brings someone comfort today. It really should. All right? Verse 36, let's continue. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away this stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been there four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around. That they may believe that you sent me. And this was all for their benefit. Okay? When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Jesus was the ultimate example of compassion for us, toward each other, in the church. When times are good, when times are tough, when, when those of us right here today are hurting, even if we can see the answer that's right around the corner for each other. You know, sometimes when you're outside of a situation of a friend, you can see the answer right there. We still should grieve with one another and rejoice with one another. That's compassion. That we not only need from each other, but that's compassion that the world needs to see happening inside of the church. Instead of infighting and backstabbing and gossip and competition with each other, the world needs to see a unified, compassionate church. A church that is taking care of its own. That's a testimony to the world. We must be compassionate for each other. And I've said it before, if you study the scriptures on unity in the church you find how profoundly important unity in the church is. In fact, the scripture says, and I'm paraphrasing my version, I've said this to you before, our testimony to the world, our testimony is at the mercy of our unity. That's a true statement. That's what the word says. It's that important. That's how the world will know that he's who he said he was, by our unity within the church. Compassion is a big part of that. I've had more than one person since we started this church. As a matter of fact, I've had plenty of people in, in my whole life in ministry come to me and say some version of this. You know, pastor, I've been hurt in the church. My last church, my last pastor really let me down. Or people in the church really hurt me, hurt my family. We were so disappointed that it's been hard for me to make a commitment to a church again, and I'm struggling with committing to your church, to this church, because of what's happened to me in the past. I always try to respond to those questions, those situations, in the most honest way that I possibly can, which is usually along the lines of this. And I just said this to someone the other day. If you stick around here at Upcountry Church long enough, chances are at some point... I'm probably going to let you down. 
in some form or fashion. Is that because I don't care? Not at all. In fact, I care deeply about you. But inevitably, I will probably fail you at some point, in some way. I'll disappoint you. I'll, I'll fall short of some expectation that you have of me, not because I don't care, but because I'm a human being, and sometimes I mess up. And if I were a betting man, I'd wager that at some point, if you stick around here long enough, you may well let me down also. Not because you don't care, you're not trying to do what's right, but because you're human. And we all mess up sometimes. So here's my offer to you. I will make a promise to you right now that, that if you disappoint me at some point, if somehow you let me down as, as we share in this journey of life together, I promise you that I won't give up on you. I won't walk away from you and I will not stop loving you. And all that I ask in return is the same thing from you. When I let you down, and I surely will at some point, please don't write me off. Don't leave your church family over an offense. By the way, an offense that may well be justified. Okay? I'm not making little of that. Because this is family. We're brothers and sisters. We don't abandon each other when everything doesn't go according to plan. On the contrary, with compassion and love, we continue on with each other. We weep together. We rejoice together. That is what we need from each other in the church. And that's what the world needs to see in this church. Okay? Philippians 2, 1 through 5. This was written to the church. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We've had people that have come here from other churches. I've always been very careful to ask. You know, if the Lord is calling you, if you feel like he's leading you here, for healthy reasons, to be a part of this ministry, then man, come on. Come on. We want you here. But please don't come if you're leaving a church over an offense because you're angry and walk out in the wrong way. Because you just carry your hurt with you and it doesn't do the church you left any good. It doesn't do this church any good. Okay? Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. I mean, look for it. Go around and look for ways. Right? What did it just say? Outdo one another in showing honor. Like, fight over it. No, I'm going to honor you more. These are examples of how we're to treat each other in the church. By the way, this church is awesome. 
I hope you don't take any of this right now as me beating up on you because I'm so pleased with how this has gone. There's such a spirit of family and unity and community in this church. So let it be a warning for the future, okay? Let's keep what we have. There's a tremendous sense of this right now in this church, okay? This is compassion for each other within the church. But compassion has to extend even beyond the church. And this is my last point. People need to see our compassion for the world, all right? There's been a lot of talk over the last several years about the church being very judgmental and intolerant. When people look to the church and see hypocrisy, they spurn everything else that we have to say. Because in their eyes, our entire message is invalidated if the evidence of that message isn't present in our own lives. Right? That's why it's so very important that we not only talk the talk, but we truly walk out what we say we believe in front of the world. Not, not out of pride or show, but out of integrity, which we talked about in week one of this series. So, so what do we do with judgment then? To judge or not to judge, that is the question. In Matthew 7, 1 and 2, Jesus says, Judge not that ye be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. This is one of the most misquoted, misinterpreted scriptures of all time. We read this and we say, See, I told you. Jesus said we're not supposed to judge each other, so leave me alone. We even go on to quote the next two verses in support of our, our twisting of this scripture. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? Sounds really convincing. We should never ever judge one another. That's how people quote this all the time. I hear it all the time. But what does verse 5 say? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't ever judge your brother's sin. He's saying don't hold each other. He's not saying don't hold each other accountable. He's not saying anything goes. We don't, don't ever judge. He's saying don't be prideful. Don't be a hypocrite when you see sin in your brother. He's saying approach each other in humility with compassion, making sure your own life is where it's supposed to be with God before trying to bring correction to everyone around you. Once you have yourself straightened out in the right attitude, then by all means, go to your brother and help him get the speck out of his own eye. James 4.12, James asked the question, who are you to judge your neighbor? But in chapter 2, Verses 12 and 13, he goes on and implies that our judgments of others should always be done with mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, the issue here is not that we should never judge. The issue is how we should judge. What is the attitude of the heart as we're holding one another accountable within the church? And I think Paul puts it most succinctly in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 9. He writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, it's impossible. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay? If we never hold one another accountable for anything, if there was never any judgment of any kind within the church, there would be no community. There would be no standard of holiness. There would be no example for the world to follow. We're absolutely to hold one another accountable within the body of Christ. And it should always be done with love and patience and mercy and compassion. We're going to talk about this more next week in the, in the final sermon in this series, Matthew 18. It has been, again, so perverted, that, that passage. But in terms of the world, outsiders, as Paul calls them, we are not to go around passing judgment and condemning them to hell. Now hear me. Our job is to show the world what it means to follow Christ through compassion, acts of mercy and kindness and love. Within this body, the church, it's a different standard, like it or not. We are to hold one another accountable, and that too should always be done in love. God will judge the world. We hold each other within the church accountable as a testimony to the world that we are not, in fact, just a bunch of hypocrites. And then we show the world God's love through compassion. Does that mean then that we ignore sin in the world and pretend that anything goes, it's okay, whatever they do. Of course not. No. That's relativism and it's counter to the gospel. We proclaim the truth of the gospel to the world, including the truth about sin and hell and judgment. That's part of the truth. And we do that in love with compassion and mercy and we allow God to judge after that. It's our job to tell the world the truth in love. It's his job to judge the world. But just as important as the message is the way that we deliver it. That's what Jesus and Paul and James just told us to do. We must deliver the message wrapped in compassion. One of my good friends and mentors, Paul McDonald, once said, Jesus did not die for truth, he died for people. Truth was definitely a part of it, but he died for people. Our disposition toward people is what brings them to Christ more than slicing them to bits with truth. I think that's right. It's not that we don't share the truth. How do we share the truth? With compassion and love. Showing compassion is how we do that. It's acting on the example that Christ gave us both within and outside the church. Jesus is the ultimate example of compassion. He hung out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors he ate with them. He hung around with them. And yet when there was the slightest bit of sin in the church, he ran them out with a whip. There's a different standard. That's just the way it is. We hold one another accountable. We love the world in compassion and we share the truth. Okay? What separates us from every other organization in the world that is out there doing good deeds? It's our example of Christ. What does a life of compassion look like? Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. In other words, you, you do good to them and let God convict them. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In order for us to be on the front lines of advancing the church, the kingdom of God, we have to first be an example of compassion within the church and then reach out with compassion to the outsiders who are lost without Christ. You know, I know that sometimes it's hard to love the unlovely, isn't it? It's not always easy to reach out to those lost in sin and hopelessness. But you know, for the, for the most part, the world isn't going to come to us. We have to go beyond ourselves to the four corners of the earth and the, the uncomfortable corners of traveler's rest to pluck our neighbors from the fires of hell. I want to see people of this city transformed by the love of God that is pouring out of these doors and windows because there's so much of it in here we can't contain it. We have to be willing to go after them. We live in a postmodern, post-Christian society, yet even unbelievers are figuring out how to reach others with compassion. And if it is not our cause, then it will be theirs.